Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 52nd episode, I'm pleased to be joined by artist Leslie Mutchler, who speaks with us from Austin, Texas, where she's also a teacher at the University of Texas at Austin. We talk at great length about all the work that she does, including a number of 2D approaches, installation, sculptural works, and sometimes works that involve viewer participation. A lot of her work deals with recycled materials, geometry, the multiple. It's all very exciting, and I hope that you check out Leslie's website, lesliemutchler.com, and follow along with this interview. If you're not familiar with Studio Break, we are a podcast and blog that features a variety of contemporary artists, all of which have slideshows, links to their websites, as well as the iTunes link, and you can easily access all of the artists that we have by going through the archive feature located on the left part of the sidebar. Just use the archive feature, go month by month, check out all the great artists that we have, and we do have a bunch, so please check them out, peruse, and see what you can find. You can also find a link to my website, davidlinaway.com, if you'd like to find out more about what I do and see the kind of work that I make, which is mostly paintings, dealing with architecture and landscape, so please go ahead and check that out. Once again, you can reach out to Studio Break in a number of different ways, including our Facebook page. So please go ahead and like us there. We provide previews of upcoming guests, as well as do show announcements for past guests, announce competitions, all sorts of good stuff. So please go ahead and like us there if you want to stay up to date. Of course, you can always follow us on Twitter, at Studio Break on Twitter. So please go ahead and follow us there. Again, if you prefer to get updates that way, we're always tweeting when we have a new podcast or announcement, anything else going on, so please follow us there. Once again, you can find us in the iTunes store. Search for Studio Break under podcasts and subscribe there if you prefer to listen that way. Again, it's a real easy way to access. We've got over 60 different podcasts, and you can easily find us there. All right, enough of that. Here is the interview with Leslie. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Studio Break. I'm happy to be joined this morning by Leslie Mutchler. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thanks, Dave. Well, it's good to have you on. And again, we've been trying to track you down for a while. And um, <laughs> I know that you've been pretty busy. But if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, you know, what you're currently doing, where you're at, um, and then we can go from there. Okay. Well, um, yeah, you're right. You have been trying to track me down for a while. Uh, about five years ago, I moved to Austin. I teach at UT Austin. Uh, I'm the area head of 2D Foundations, um, and I've been restructuring that that program, working, you know, intensely with the curriculum, kind of overseeing that, and, and trying to grow really our, our base foundations department. Um, loving Austin, um, making my own work, of course, while I'm here, uh, uh, spending a lot of time on my research, but then most recently. Uh, I have to say this because I just got to put it out there and I think it's going to come up in conversation later on. I just had a baby in July. So that has been keeping me very, very, very busy. Um, and that's currently where I am, kind of juggling all of those things all at once. Well, and of course, congratulations. It's, a, I'm sure, a very, you know, all all life-changing kind of thing. So. It really is. You know, they say it is, but until you go through it, man, I mean, it just, it really is. It's amazing. That's why. That's as much as I can say about it for now. <laughs> but congratulations again. Um, you know, one thing that I, I always find interesting too is, especially to get a, a bit more of a background too. So I have no idea where you grew up and um, what some of your interests were early on, and it's always fun to kind of hear that. So um, if you could just talk a little bit about where you, where you're from and um, whether or not you were building uh, anything out of cardboard or. Um, anything like that as a kid. I don't know why I imagine just an elaborate tree fork. Well, you're right. You're, well, you're right on with the cardboard. I feel like my, my mother figured out pretty early on that our kids were most happy with large refrigerator boxes, you know, and, and a, a cheap paint set so that we could kind of make our own houses or submarines or whatever. Um, but I grew up in a, a really kind of small town, uh, Pennsylvania, southwestern corner of Pennsylvania, Bedford. Um, which is the home of the Bedford Springs. And I'm not sure that you know what the Bedford Springs is, but it's this really large, uh, uh, kind of elaborately gorgeous um, uh, hotel that was shut down for a period uh, 
think in the 80s and the 90s, and then was rebought and reopened. But several presidents used to actually vacation out at the Springs. So it was this, it's like this small, quaint, colonial town, really kind of gorgeous in terms of um, the environment and the atmosphere, but very, it was a really sheltered upbringing in terms of, you know, exposure to culture, um, <laughs> diversity, anything like that. We moved when I was 13 to Ohio. Um, so I, I went to high school um, and, and, you know, the later part of my education in Ohio, including uh, going to college for my undergraduate degree uh, at Kent State, uh, which I got uh, a BFA at the time in printmaking uh, with a minor in art history. And funny thing is about Kent State, I picked uh, that that college because I wanted to actually be a journalist. <laughs> I wanted to write. So I went to Kent State for a year in the journalism department um, on a couple of scholarships and decided that it really wasn't for me and found myself back in drawing classes, which I had always taken drawing classes and art classes and kind of screwed around, um, on my own found. So I found myself back in that area and, and decided that, that was where I wanted to be. Excellent. And, and so you, you had kind of talked a little bit about this just now. Um, were you really active then in high school too as well? I mean, you, you kind of took all, all sorts of drawing classes. Did you have the opportunity to do printmaking then? I didn't do any printmaking. I wasn't introduced to printmaking actually until my sophomore year in college through, you know, an introduction to printmaking class. Um, you know, I, I suppose I, I was doing printmaking as a kid and it probably, you know, like in elementary school, middle school, high school in terms of stamping, you know, like basic mm-hmm. relief projects, but I wasn't thinking about it in terms of printmaking at that point. Uh, I did take all of your kind of like standard high school AP art classes. Um, you know, I think more or less just because it was an environment in which I was allowed to do a lot of what I wanted to do, <laughs> you know, and I wanted that kind of freedom. A lot of my work at that period of time was really about writing. So I think that's still where my interest in journalism and writing kind of came from was that I was trying to mix these two different things. Um, and I was really, uh, when I, when I applied to, to school at Kent state, um, I wanted to not only be a journalist, but I really was interested in the idea of information design, which was, you know, how can we, you know, kind of move words on a page. And I mean, I think maybe some of the stuff that a lot of people don't think about when they look through magazines or when they look through, you know, a newspaper, if they do that now, since all of that material has kind of migrated to the web, um, but the layout of those things, what that thing physically looks like. And I spent a lot of time in high school looking at magazines like Ray Gunn, right? Um, and, and just being really interested in the organization of information. Um, and so that's what led me kind of down that path. Sure. And and so when, when you kind of made the, the transition or decided that you were going to go into art then and, and kind of leave this idea of journalism um, – what what kind of work were you interested in making, you know, because I would imagine that would be, you know, some kind of change or some kind of experience that's kind of, you know, dictating, oh, man, I've got to got to go this other route. Yeah, I think the it took me maybe in college the first year, two years to sort of find my way through um, having a voice in my own work, but, you know, also kind of figure out what it meant to be an artist in terms of um utilizing research and utilizing information. I've never been, even though I, you know, I'm the kind of person that, that keeps journals and that likes to write, um, not as much as I used to, but still occasionally, um, you know, I like to read. Um, I, I don't, I've never thought of myself as being the type of artist that needs to necessarily express some sort of, um, emotion or express some sort of discontent or, you know, that's never really been my, want or need, uh, for art to serve as that kind of an outlet. Um, so it it took maybe until my junior year in college, maybe the second half of my junior year for me to realize that, okay, the work could be about me because of course, at that point in time, you know, as you know, a a 20 year old, like you were really what you know, the best, um, (laughs) more than almost anything. Um, if you even know that Uh, the work can be about me, but I needed the work to be uh, so systematic and so structured. So I started, you know, the work kind of, it it kind of based itself in mapping, um, 
and, and loose structures and systems that I would kind of impose upon myself and making. So the work never really had, I'm, I'm kind of famous for giving artist talks, um, to groups of, of students or, you know, when I travel to universities and saying, you know, that I'm a printmaker and I think of myself as a printmaker. Um, but I often think of myself as a type of printmaker that's interested in the multiple and the message that comes from the multiple versus, you know, an image. Um, I was never interested in images. I was, I was just, I was never interested in drawing the way that a lot of, of students or persons, you know, or artists get, get interested in drawing. Um, I really wanted to, to figure out how to display information. And so that information came from me in terms of, you know, memories, writing, that kind of stuff, but always looked pretty minimal and pretty dry. Interesting. Cause, cause that idea that you're talking about too, is usually the, the kind of thing that I think most people experience, you know, they're taking a printmaking class and they're surrounded by all these really intense printmakers that, you know, have all of these really intricate kind of processes. But it's interesting to think about it in terms of that idea of the multiple or kind of engaging in that, that system of it. And so was that idea then of, mm-hmm. of being active and, um, you know, kind of thinking about the, about ways that you can have other people interact with, with your work and, and think about it, was that something that was more of a, something that you examined early then, or did you, did you have like a, you know, a period where you were kind of still, you know, mostly playing with the the media and, and figuring out what you wanted to do? Well, I think the work has always, you know, in some small way or another has always been about communication, you know, and in some, some ways may, I think often, you know, yeah. Okay. So my first choice of a major, you know, that I, that didn't quite pan out for me that I, I moved away from was something called information, you know, design, which really kind of falls into a design parameter. And, and, and when you think of designers or when you think of what it is that designers do, it's, it's effectively about communication. Um, so I think in some small way or another, the work has always been, been about, you know, communicating um, and, and, and giving the viewer something really straightforward. Uh, it, it, you know, it started, I guess, in small ways in terms of charting and mapping, displaying information in kind of a, a quantitative way so that a viewer could perhaps understand it. Um, or, or, you know, giving them a door to kind of enter into that work and maybe figure some of it out, even if they couldn't figure all of it out. Um, and, you know, to the later work where now I'm very, I think, explicitly giving instructions to my viewers in terms of how to interact, you know, how to be involved with the piece. Um, and have become very interested in those structures, in, in that system of organization and how persons kind of function and react to those, those kinds of orders. Sure. And, and I think one of the other things that is also something that it makes me wonder, you know, just looking back on all this work is that there's also a level of, you know, self-ingenuity or self-exploration in terms of, it seems like, you know, I need to utilize this new material or I need to try doing this and I'm going to teach myself to do it. Is that also something that's always been a part of your process? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think um, the, th- the funny thing about being a printmaker, and a lot of printmakers would probably, you know, roll over and sort of, well, I should say, wouldn't say roll over, they should they roll their eyes at me saying this, but I'm not a printmaker in the sense that, you know, I get all kind of excited about, you know, pulling a good lithograph or, you know, <laughs> I like being in the shop and, you know, smelling the ink and making a good etching. I'm, I'm, I'm really not that kind of printmaker. Um, so, you know, in terms of ingenuity, I think from the beginning, I learned the processes. I understood how I was supposed to make something, but then I was always more interested in what I could take of those processes and make beyond you know, what was expected to result. So, you know, that kind of manifests itself in the work in terms of, you know, I, if, if we look at some of the earlier digital or earlier collages of mine where I'm cutting um, images out of, you know, uh, consumer catalogs like Crate and Barrel, West Elm, um, and, and making these kind of architectural um, spaces out of these forms, I then figured out quite quickly that I could take these images and, and, you know, scan them, 
put them into, uh, you know, Photoshop and actually contort those images and play around with them in terms of perspective and build even more elaborate, you know, scenes or landscapes from, from those images. So, um, you know, that's an example, I think, of taking something and kind of twisting or pushing the limits of that thing. You know, when I started working with the, the grow pieces, um, you know, I've been recycling paper for years and years and years from old installations, you know, for a number of different reasons. Uh, but I came to this point where I wanted the paper to do something more. I wanted the paper, you know, to not just be paper. And so the, you know, it made the most sense to me that this paper could become, you know, uh, a vehicle for life. And so I had to start experimenting with, um, how to plant grass and how to plant different types of, um, of seed in, in, in this paper and, you know, how to keep that seed alive and keep that seed growing. So I think, you know, yeah, every step along the way, every single kind of part of my process of making is about learning something new. It's about ingenuity. It's about trying something out. And even if it's a failure, you know, I, I typically, you learn something from that. And I think that's maybe one of the most important things. It also keeps you or keeps me more engaged in the work. Well, it makes me wonder what, you know, some of the, some of the work that you're making in graduate school and what that transition earlier would look like. In graduate school, it's, um, it started off with a lot of, uh, aesthetically quite physically, you know, just describing it physically. It started off with like a lot of hand scrawl kind of, um, note taking lots of, um, illegible thoughts scribbled down on giant sheets of paper, um, waxed paper string. Um, it had like a physicality to it that I would kind of liken to something that maybe, you know, artist Leslie Dill might do, um, where she uses text and kind of reappropriates text in lots of different ways. And I think I was still very much enamored with the idea of language and playing around with language. Although I don't think that I was very sure that what I was trying to say with the language I was using was, you know, concise or succinct or, you know, even the end goal at that particular point in time, it became very clear to me in graduate school that, you know, surrounded by printmakers that like to make prints. And also, you know, I went to Tyler, um, in Philadelphia and I chose that program because it's, it is known as an interdisciplinary program. And I, when I went to school there, I didn't have to take printmaking classes. I took a lot of sculpture classes. I took a lot of, um, graduate seminars with painters and, and, um, students that, you know, were working in all sorts of different types of media. And, um, you know, I wanted that experience because I didn't think that I was a printmaker printmaker. Uh, and I wanted, you know, to be able to broaden my base. So, I think from being, you know, in those classes, working with those faculty, being among my peers, you know, I very kind of quickly realized that my interest in printmaking and the strength that I saw as coming from that medium or the interest for me was in the multiplicity, was in, um, you know, the, the, the form as being kind of a vehicle for a voice. And instead of having one thing that says one thing, you have one thing that says one thing over and over and over and over again. And to me, that sort of became an amplification in a way. Um, and I was interested in, you know, the way that quite simply a stack of paper, you know, can kind of be a stand in for, um, the everyday, uh, the quotidian, uh, you know, banality perhaps. Um, and I was, I I wanted to utilize, you know, the multiple as a vehicle for that kind of a message. So the work became solely about as many prints as I could make. (laughs) I was using newsprint at the time. Um, I was cutting newsprint down into three by three inch squares to mimic uh, you know, a standard post-it note, something that we regularly see in offices and in books and, you know, in academic environments. Um, and I was making, remaking those, those post-it notes out of newsprint, which is an organic material. I like the idea that the the material would slowly deteriorize and and disintegrate, you know, another thing kind of that, that always is in the back of my head. Um, and I think is still really prevalent in the work today is this interest in, um, material having a temporal quality. 
Um, especially in my work, I, one of the first things that you're taught when you're in printmaking class is, you know, we're using this type of ink and this type of paper, this type of paper is archival. (laughs) That means it's acid free. That means it's going to last forever and you want your prints to last forever. And I never really understood that concept. I never really understood the idea of something living on into perpetuity. Um, and so I've always experimented with things that are non-archival, that have a temporal quality to them, that can be recycled, that can be discarded, that don't have a preciousness. Um, and I think that that comes not only from that interest in material, um, but also, you know, from from an interest in, in the everyday, which then became the subject matter of my work, I would say, in graduate school, this idea of of banality, of, um, you know, this kind of communication that could happen on a post-it note, um, over and over and over and over and over again, that gets discarded. That's not remembered. That's not important. And yet it existed at a moment in time for some reason or another. Um, so the first few pieces I think that I still talk about today in my work and still think are kind of, um, at the beginning of, of, of where I am now, I suppose, in the lineage don't get kind of discarded along the way. Um, recollection and it's called post-its. Both pieces are made of uh, 10,000 to half a million cut pieces of newsprint paper that's been digitally printed upon. So um, it's about process. It's about the banality of the, of the material. It's about, you know, again, that, that multiple as vehicle for voice. Well, and it's interesting too, because there's still, you know, as we talked about earlier, that, that idea of language and it, it, brought up to, to my attention, or at least in my head, just the idea that, you know, students especially often kind of forget that, that they're learning a visual language. They're not, they're not just learn, you know, they're not just learning how to be creative, but they're also all, you know, learning a way of communication. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder then too. So what, what was it that, that kind of changed that idea then for you of being a, more of a text-based kind of thing um, to something that, you know, is more of a, a visual type thing? Cause even if it's just, you know, the way that you're reorganizing, um, you know, catalog images or, mm-hmm. or things that are kind of those everyday, um, mm-hmm. everyday printed material that we just kind of run through, you know, what was it that, that kind of set up that, that transition? Cause I think, you know, despite, um, I don't know, that, that lack of a, uh, you know, a real love to make something that, that smells like ink, mm-hmm. um, you can't help but think about how visually, interesting all these pieces are too and and the way that it kind of moves towards that that side of it as well yeah i think it part of it is that at some point language and it became so difficult for me to use i became i think pretty aware that language wasn't really what the work was about i think it's probably everybody probably would say this but you know who doesn't love sitting down, you know, with a cup of tea and reading a really good book. Like it is probably one of the best things in the world. And so this idea of, of using language for me was always really important. I think as a, even as a young child through adolescence and into college, but at some point, you know, I realized that I am not a master of language the way that, you know, real writers are masters of language. So, um, it became, you know, abundantly clear that, I was working in a visual field and that was already making a visual statement and I needed to kind of own up to what that visual statement was and how it would act and how the audience would, would start to um, engage with that. And I think over the years I've become more and more kind of grateful to, to the power of the visual, to the power of aesthetics, to um, I kind of have become enamored almost with the idea of like the sexy object or the, you know, the beautiful colored print or, um, you know, the thing that is alluring and attractive and, and draws that person or that viewer in. And then you can kind of ask them to slow down and, and think about more complicated things. Um, but you need something to grab them. I think as, as an artist, you're always sort of, you're justifying things in your head and then you have to re-justify those things. And you're going back and forth and back and forth in your own practice in terms of what it is that you think you can allow yourself to do and, and what might work for the piece. And I think I've come to this stage in the work, especially with, you know, the, the recent pieces, um, you know, block and, and Tumblr reel and uh, trend factory, where I'm really interested in making these seductive printed things, you know, that draw a viewer and then engage a viewer and then ask them to do something or think something that is a bit more complicated 
than just the attractive or the alluring. You're justifying things in your head and then you have to re-justify those things. And you're going back and forth and back and forth in your own practice in terms of what it is that you think you can allow yourself to do and, and what might work for the piece. And I think I've come to this stage in the work, especially with, you know, the, the recent pieces, um, you know, block and, and Tumblr reel and, uh, trend factory where I'm really interested in making these seductive printed things, you know, that draw a viewer and then engage a viewer and then ask them to do something or think something that is a bit more complicated than just the attractive or the alluring. Right, right. Well, and I think also it, it, and I think something that ties into all of, um, you know, what, what is really represented on on your website, all the, all the different bodies of work is the way that we kind of catalog everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly would see, and, and I'm familiar with that idea of how, how cataloging might play a role in some of those earlier works. And I'm hoping that you could discuss that a little bit that, but then also, you know, as we move forward, I mean, it's very hard to separate those in, in a certain way because they kind of feed back into it. Um, yeah. But but how did how did that t- take a role? Because I thought for a second you're going to say everyone loves curling up with a cup of tea and you know a new Bed Bath and Beyond catalog or so. I don't, that's a bad example. Well, I don't I don't know no. my catalogs. You don't. You, oh, you're not a catalog guy. Not really. Yeah. No. I I still love to look through all of the new Crate and Barrel catalogs. Or yeah, it's disgusting. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it, that plays a role as, um, you know, so I was raised in a middle-class family and, um, you know, my parents, uh, did well, you know, and, um, I, I, we were never, we never wanted for anything. I was, I had a very lucky and sheltered upbringing. And I think, um, you know, we always had, you know, I think because they're baby boomers, like, the, you know, they always had a few of something. So, like, you don't just have one extension cord. You have, like, five extension cords. Or you don't just have, um, you know, like, one broom, but you have five brooms because you might need five brooms. Or you have the latest gadget that opens your mail for you or those sorts of things, right? And I, I kind of became very... I think I became very aware through graduate school that my experience was not at all like other people's experience in terms of the stuff that surrounded their upbringing. And, um, I became kind of acutely aware of the stuff that they have and that I grew up with and the stuff that I then had as a graduate student and the stuff that, you know, I would have later in life or, or kind of, you know, what is the materiality of that stuff? Why do we have that stuff? Why do we need that stuff? You know, it's safe to say that at that particular point in time when I'm going was going to graduate school, we, you know, it was all the buzz to talk about sustainability and the environment, and you know, the idea of, um, uh, uh, you know, this mass-produced kind of junk that kept, you know, finding its way in the world and filling our closets and filling our houses and filling our garages and, um, you know, then filling our landfills as soon as we decided we were done with it and you know we wanted to throw it out. So I think all of those things kind of became, you know, part of my practice, became part of what I was engaged with or what I am engaged with as an artist. Um, you know, the, the, the catalogs, the West Down, the Crate and Barrel, the, the CB2, <laughs> you know, those fancy designer objects um, are alluring to me because they are these really like highly aestheticized objects that you know, kind of signify a certain kind of wealth and a certain kind of, um, you know, education and a certain kind of background. Um, but they don't really mean anything. They're so hollow and they're so vapid and there's nothing to them. And so when I started cutting them out of catalogs and reorganizing them and building architectural structures with them, I was really, you know, I was solely at, at the beginning concentrating on, the furniture in those catalogs and how you could reuse and reappropriate the furniture to build, uh, you know, highly, um, let's say highly organized, uh, um, storage systems, because I was thinking about all of this stuff that people have, you know, the garages that are full of junk and what kind of things would they need? I mean, you know, we also had a, a brief period of time where I think, you could get a job as an organizational consultant or someone that would come into your house and help you clean out your garage and organize your life and get your, you know, you back on track. And all of that seems so 
ridiculous and um, just there was something there. There was something there that I, I wanted to get to. So that's kind of what I was doing with the catalogs and reacting to that that type of um, maybe a need from our society for things. Um, and then as I as I kept cutting more and more things out of the catalogs, I realized that the objects themselves were pretty pretty awesome too in terms of their. I mean, again, there are these sexy objects that are grossly banal. I mean, they have absolutely no purpose or function except to sit on a shelf and to look decorative. And I, you know, I really, I wanted to play around with those those concepts and those ideas. And so some of those things come into the later work. I mean, the Tumblr real piece that was installed at Gensler Global Architecture in Austin is very much about you know, I have this tumbler that I keep that um, is is for my own personal uh, visual investigations of just kind of alluring imagery that I find when I'm online, um, different types of patterns and objects and, um, you know, and I kind of collect them and am inter- interested in how they all really relate to one another and how they all kind of... Um, seem to follow a trend, even if you can't quite put your finger on what the trend is, but there's a loose trend there. Um, so that, that piece Tumblr reel really kind of talks about that and talks about that alluring, sexy object. And it's really, I mean, it's all coming from, you know, the same place that, that catalog culture, I think. Yeah. And it, it makes me wonder too, what it would have been like if you were working on, on cutting out collage materials while watching hoarders or even <laughs> even what a hoarders or a hoarder might, you know, say or, or see about them, you know. Right, especially, right. Especially just like the idea of a empty empty cabinets or, right. you know, kind of putting, staging, staging objects in a way so that you're really noticing just the objects in a, you know, suggestive kind of interior. Well, and there's always been, I think in my work too, there's the, the, especially the earlier collage pieces. And then, I mean, I I guess even it maybe flows through all of them into the later digital collage work. Um, This idea of absence or negative space that's used in the pieces themselves. And I, that, that for me is really about potential. You know, I think, um, I think not only do I think about the stuff that people have and how they might organize or, or keep or store that stuff. I mean, I'm sure I would say the majority of people don't even think about organizing that stuff that they have, but I get excited about the organization of stuff. But then beyond that, I get excited about, well, what if you got rid of the stuff and then you just um, had this organizational system and then you had all of this room, like there's all this raw potential, right? You could fill this space with something, um, but maybe you'd never have to fill it with anything that maybe that, that absence, you know, that, that, that possibility I think is so much stronger than the stuff itself. Well, and it's interesting too, to think about how, you know, visually how even those pieces that are dealing with the negative space, how we're organizing these things all kind of set up some of the other ones, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, even in the way that, you know, um, you know, not much farther along in your work, you have, um, you know, pieces like the, um, the cut stack and fold, um, yeah. cubes or, or the way that you're kind of starting to incorporate some of the sculptural kind of approaches and installation approaches that, you know, you've been, you've been using and, and doing in some of your other projects. Right. Right. Um, and so what, what is there, was there a level of playing around with, you know, how you're setting these, these installations up or, I mean, were there, were there ways that people could start to interact with them already in that, that earlier stage in like the 2006, seven kind of area? Yeah, I mean, I think um, if you look at Cabinet Influx, which is the piece that's all um, wood veneer, and it, it's the final stage of the the, the raw paper, the newsprint piece, um, where it, it becomes a storage system that catalogs and holds all of these 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 bits of printed ephemera, but effectively turns everything inside, right? So that you can't see the paper anymore. All you see is the exterior of this form and it's very sleek looking and it's totemic and it, you know, it's, it's kind of monolithic and minimal and it it would fit in a dwell magazine somewhere, right? It would look kind of sexy in your, your living room. Um, but then jumping like forward a little bit, I started experimenting with, with Coroplast, um, um, and, and use, utilizing some of the collage elements from, 
you know, um, the catalogs, literally scanning them in and blowing them up in scale and applying them to the plastic and building these collages in a much more physical way in an attempt to allow uh, persons to, to, yeah, become physically engaged with these things. So with the cut, fold, stack, repeat piece, you know, this is literally um, a piece that is all flat pack, you know, can all be folded down and can be shipped anywhere quite, you know, quickly and, and cost efficiently. Um, and, you know, could then you, you would open it up in your house and you could assemble these cubes and you could stack them in any way you want to. And then it, it would hold your stuff. You could put your stuff in there anywhere you want. You, know, you could fill it in any way that you wanted to. Of course, you know, for my own interests, I'm always leaving these things empty, or I'm much more interested in the idea of the emptiness of these things or the absence or the potential. Um, but, you know, then coming from that, the, the geodesic sphere uh, that I was working with, the storage, I think it's called storage sphere or something like that, um, you know, is also another play on this idea of storage that you can't quite get at. So you've got this this form that um, has all of these handles all over it, and, you know, you, it seems as if it must have a function or a use, but it doesn't. So, um, again, kind of going in between those those that those spaces of, of functionality and potential and promise, um, you know. And I, I think uh, in terms of then making the jump to the paperworks, like the the recycled paperwork, um, you know, that too is doing a very similar thing, but it's doing it a very kind of with with a different materiality. Um, you know, I was really interested in taking the paper from the old installations and repurposing it, repurposing it in some way. So, you know, I taught myself paper making, you know, I pulped the paper down, I made the paper into a much heavier kind of, um, almost like cardstock or cardboard consistency. And then I could build physically with that paper. And I was, I was interested in, again, trying to build storage systems out of something that was once, you know, a collection of something. Well, it brings up something else that's interesting to me too, then, is that you, you f- start finding ways to talk about some of the ideas that are, you know, brought up with just the, the collage, but then, you know, like the the pieces, um, the, the furniture palette pieces, where they're, again, these images that are digitally blown up, and then you've kind of kind of turned them into these, these palettes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, I could easily see how you have something like that then that's, again, you know, talking about the way that, that um, you know, these objects that we kind of cherish so much might be turned into something like that or, or something that, right. you know, simply used to kind of store other objects. But then it's interesting, too, because then you start recycling some of these other ones, um, like with the paper space piece, you know, mm-hmm. like you were just describing these handmade papers and, and the way that those can be kind of recycled. And it, it mm-hmm. makes me wonder, too, is is that something that... You know, that ecology, that idea of the environment, is that something that is also kind of important in terms of, you know, bring up that idea of how, how we utilize our objects and, and the things that we have around us and, you know, how they're all going to be, you know, decomposing at some point or repurposed or yeah. forgotten. You know? Yeah, it is. It is. And in, in 2007, I did a, a residency at Soaring Gardens in Pennsylvania, in northeast Pennsylvania, and... um I read, um, I was reading, every time I go on a residency, I try to take books. I mean, I try to take work to do too, but I, I try to take books. And I think of, I mean, quite literally the last residency I went to, I think I did more reading than I did making. And I think it was really very good for me to do the reading that I did. But um, I read um, Cradle to Cradle, which is all about this idea of upcycling. And again, we're like hitting the time period where I think, it's at, during 2007, sustainability is like such a buzzword that no one even wants to hear it anymore. Like it's become kind of cliche at that point. Um, but I read a book called Cradle to Cradle on upcycling and was interested in this idea of um, the things that we manufacture possibly being returned to the manufacturer and being uh, remade in a, in a process or recycled in such a way that they could become a new again, to become a, a new material, right, um, and have a furthered lifespan. And, you know, it's a, it's a really good – it poses, or, uh, poses a really good moral question. Why, why don't we think about the things that we make and generate in the world um, and what might happen to them at the end of their lifespan and whether or not they can be reused or um, recycled or um, given a new life. So, 
Yeah, I think that that definitely started having a strong kind of resonance in my own studio practice. I mean, that's specifically when I started learning about um, uh, paper making and recycling the old paper that I had and reusing it and remaking it. So you see with these paper installations, it kind of goes through a whole gamut where, you know, the paper is used as um, a structural component to build in. Um, it, it, it becomes uh, uh, shaped and multifaceted and can, you can build with it in a different uh, uh, sort of ways. I, I, you know, take it a step further and I'm literally making architectural dioramas a little later from it um, and, and growing grass to kind of destroy that architecture, destroy the man-made, um, you know, and then it even becomes totally utilitarian or totally functional at some point, and the paper gets turned into bowls that get, you know, a ceramic outer coating on them um, that can hold water and, and literally grow, you know, lentils and sustain life. So, and, and obviously the bowls kind of reference the idea of nourishment or food too. So I like the idea of using this material kind of to its end. Um, it happens with those pieces very clearly. I, um, and, and I think a viewer can, if, you know, they do a little bit of homework, I guess, and, and realize where the paper's coming from or, or read a little bit about it, they might know those things. Um, or maybe they can even tell from the physicality of the paper, but it's really important to me in my practice. Um, but it's influenced other things like, the uh, work that I did uh, in Argentina at uh, Proyecto Ache, I was invited to, to come down and do a three-week print residency at a shop called Proyecto Ache, and um, I wanted to, to make a piece. I wanted to, to create this, these prints and, and, and put up an installation that um, would somehow you know, have a continued lifespan. And so after doing some research in Buenos, uh, about Buenos Aires, I, I found um, a group of people called the Cartoneros, which are uh, people in Buenos Aires that live actually on the outskirts of the city and come into the city in the evenings and during the night. And they collect all the recyclables, specifically paper, cardboard, chipboard, and then they take it back out on the trains with them in the evening or, you know, late at night, and they sell it to the factories on the outskirts of town. And they, they literally make their their incomes from selling other people's recyclable materials. So when I did this project at Proyecto Ache, the stipulation there was that we would buy everything in the city. So all of the cardboard and the chipboard and the paper used in that installation is all bought from, um, you know, a distributor in the city. And once the installation was finished, uh, the cartoneros were invited to come up and deinstall the installation and to take the recyclable materials, you know, back out of the city and to sell them so they could make a little bit of money from the piece. So I think I'm constantly thinking about those types of things, um, with my work. Well, and it's it's interesting because there's, you know, to find out about the the whole kind of uh, you know reporter style of it or the that that kind of early interest in literary um, stuff. I, I for some reason had figured maybe science and you know <laughs> experimentation that way would be kind of in there. And it's so mm -hmm. interesting to me because a lot of these pieces that allow for this interaction between the materials that you were kind of hand making. And the natural materials are also, you know, very interesting in terms of the way that they're allowed to kind of interact with, with what you've made. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously, I would imagine that's something that's going to kind of continue. But um, was it just, I mean, how does that relationship work then in terms of, you know, designing like all the, the ways that they're presented, the scaffolding? I mean, is it something where you're literally just kind of... Um, you know, cleaning up an idea until you kind of feel like, okay, we got to do this. You know, I've got all these components and this is how, how this is going to go together. I like that phrasing, cleaning up an idea. Cause I do think that that's, that's a large part of it. You start with these, this kind of layered, you know, set of information that you're dealing with and you, you know, you, you, you know, let's say for instance, we look at the futility kitchen piece, which was installed at, um, um, snowflake gallery in, in, in St. Louis, in 2011, it's really, I mean, that piece is so multi-layered for me in terms of, of all of these different things going on within it. You know, um, the, the basic start of that piece in my mind, it was from reading about, um, Hameau de la Reine, which was, um, Marie Antoinette's faux farm that she had built where she and her, her friends could go hang out and act as shepherdesses and put on dresses and, you know, 
basically they, the, the idea was that they could escape from, you know, their really daunting tasks of royalty, you know, royal life and become simple, the simple, like they could live the simple life. Um, and I really liked the, the dichotomy of that relationship and sort of the, you know, the perverseness of that idea that only someone that's really wealthy can actually pay to construct a faux farm where they would go and pretend to be, you know, a simple person. Um, so like, that's one tiny basis of this project that, you know, was sort of a catalyst, I guess we could call it a catalyst. It starts, starts me thinking about where to move on from there. Um, and you know, that then you can kind of see where there's like a, kind of faux kitchen facade set up in the interior of the gallery and there are grow lights and I'm growing lentils. So instead of growing grasses this time, I'm experimenting with a, a food that we could physically eat that could provide some sort of nourishment, not that grass couldn't, but we're a step closer to something that could be more recognizable, I suppose, as food. Um, there are drawings or gouache drawings that, that go all around the gallery that talk about that idea of the sexy object, materiality and wealth. Um, that are again all all drawn from images of um, of objects that I found online and in consumer catalogs of you know like uh, um, you know things that people think that they need to have that say something about who they are as a person or say something about um, how they live or what their interests are aesthetically. Um, in that that installation, there's also um, an educational kind of kiosk, if you will. There's a table set up where you can sit and you can look through some of the reading materials that I was reading at the time that the installation was put together. And this is something that I've started doing a little bit more regularly. I really like this idea of imposing, um, (laughs) because like you said, there's, there's like, it's like cleaning up an idea. How do you clean up this idea? Because it's so vast, it's so rich, there's so much going on with it. And it almost seems sometimes as if, you know, you get so excited and engaged with this, this multi-layered idea. You don't want to let any small part of it kind of fall through the cracks. And yet, you know, that visually you've got to clean that thing up to present it to an audience so that it seems somewhat coherent. So this idea for, um, an educational kiosk I actually stole from Paul Vilaninsky, who did uh, emergency studio response trailer. He basically took a, a FEMA trailer and turned it into an emergency, you know, studio. That was he did this right after Katrina had happened, and it was shown at Rice in Houston. And he had this he had the trailer outside, so you could walk around this this trailer and see how he utilized it for a studio space. But what was most interesting to me was the inside this, the gallery space. He had tables upon tables of information that he had been calling through to kind of figure out how this studio would operate, all sorts of different information on architecture, on, you know, green uh, building, um, just, you know, tons and tons and tons of things that kind of help you to understand the, the practice of the artist, while sometimes can be simple and sometimes can, you know, amount to, you know, expression and emotion and, and be very raw and sort of, let's say intuitive and of the moment, sometimes it's not that way at all. Sometimes it's tortured and there's a lot of information going into a piece. Um, and I wanted to be able to explain that to the viewer. I wanted to show them some of that depth. Um, yeah. So a, a piece like futility kitchen, I think, you know, it looks, you know, you commented on the, the laboratory or science kind of experiment part of it. I think, you know, I think that that's there. I think that that exists, though, more as I, I'll say right now, I think it exists as like an aesthetic guise, as a way to make a viewer understand that this is an experiment <laughs> more more than anything else. It's not that I'm necessarily interested in the experiment. I'm interested in the thing looking like an experiment. Well, and I think it also invites that that participatory kind yeah. of aspect to it, you know. And I think, you know, especially because we brought it up a number of times, um, um, the the Trend Factory, and mm-hmm. you know the the projects that you have going on, you know, now where it looks like you're you're printing these these sheets of paper and asking people to kind of, you know, make assemblages of them. Could you could you talk a little bit about maybe some of the way that 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 other side of it is also going on as well as and it's used utilizing some of the kind of natural materials. So what's, what's that all about? Yeah. So trend factory is the most recent installation that I've been working on. And it's, um, it's, 
It's, it's definitely multi-participatory. Um, I'm asking the viewer or the audience, whoever that may be, um, I invite classes in sometimes. I work with groups of students to come into this space and to pick a color substrate, which um, everything is from the first uh installation of Trend Factory, everything was relief printed with the help of, this is great too, with the help of students collaborating with me at at the University of North Texas in Denton at Print Press. So we spent a couple days with students there and we literally printed 400 prints um, that were then later used in in the first installation of this piece. I just recently got back from a, a short print residency at Texas State, um, where we silk screened 400 pieces together as um, a group, and so I'm I'm trying to one kind of use the the audience or the or, or the community as um, you know effectively collaborators in these pieces or in this work that I'm making. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired of this mode of or this model of the artist in the studio that you know is is you know. Toiling with something, I, I really I like this idea of of bringing multiple hands, multiple ideas, um, and and um, just participation into the piece. So with Trend Factory, you walk into a space, you pick one of the colored prints. It's um, pr- they're printed on chipboard, so they're a heavier material. They've already been scored for you, and they're scored in an isometric pattern, isometric isometric triangular pattern so that they can easily be folded into a three-dimensional shape. And so you're given a simple set of instructions. Um, There are hand tools for you to use. There are scissors and there's tape. And the instructions simply say fold, cut, assemble, document, and recycle. And so basically there's also an instructional video that you could watch if you'd like to watch the instructional video. Um, you're invited to take this this flat two-dimensional print, cut it and fold it and tape it together in any way that you see fit to create a unique three-dimensional object. And then what I ask in terms, in turn from the viewer, from having the experience of making the thing, is if they would so kindly photograph the piece that they've made and then post the photograph using their phone, typically, because everybody now is walking around with a phone or a camera on their phone, you know, in their pocket, um, take a picture of the object that they've made and then upload it to a Tumblr. So literally kind of the culmination of this piece or of um, this installation is all living online virtually and can be seen by anybody anywhere. And I like that idea. I like that the piece itself um, in the gallery setting isn't really more than a lab or, you know, a classroom or a a really minimal kind of studio environment in which people are invited to get together and have a conversation and make something. Um, But then the the outcome really is online. The outcome is, you know, virtual. I think that that idea is is really accessible in, in a way that it's very hard to get just when you go into a museum and you see a massive piece by you know, some modernist painter. And, and I think that, mm-hmm. you know, especially just by, by inviting people to come make these things, share them with others, it kind of helps them to, to understand where you're, where you're coming from by, by having them, you know, participate in it, which is yeah. a really exciting way to, to do it. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm, I, I, there are so many things that have come out of this piece. So it was first shown in, uh, at the project space at the Lawndale Art Center in Houston, um, which it went really well there. I mean, working with the staff at Lawndale was amazing. They're probably one of the best staffs that I've ever worked with. And, you know, in the many years, the 10 years that I've been making work and installing work. So that was a really great experience. And, um, you know, it traveled then to the VAC, the Visual Arts Arts Center, um, on our campus at UT in the fall, which was great because I got to see my students interact with this piece and my graduate students interact with this piece in a, in a very different way than, you know, I like an outside kind of audience had. And it'll be traveling to Montreal uh, in May. Then it'll go to Indianapolis in June, and it will then go to North Carolina um, in the fall of next year. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily going to be this kind of thing that's not going to continue to travel. I hope that it continues to travel and kind of has this continued lifespan. I mean, it, it gets to, you know, the great things I've figured out from this piece thus far, and it's still kind of changing is that, you know, one, it gives me an excuse to work with, uh, 
large groups of students and print shops at, at universities. And, you know, I'm, I would be interested in working with smaller print shops all across the country as well to, you know, to make these, these pieces that go into the show and the idea that everybody kind of has a hand in the making. Um, I'm sure Dave, you've heard about the Ikea effect. Have you heard about the Ikea effect? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. So it was, I, it's, it's kind of perfect. It's, um, it basically states that, and you can find articles on it, I think written in the Harvard Business Review, but it states that, uh, it's the psychological effect that has, that states that anything, um, that a person is involved with making, uh, they tend to be engaged with it more. They tend to enjoy it more. They tend to really think that that thing is something. It essentially means that labor leads to love. So anything that we touch with our hands, anything, you know, from a home cooked dinner to, um, you know, like a birthday card that you make by hand for someone because you've made it, it means more. And it specifically means more to you. So I like this idea that I'm asking these people to come in and be involved in this piece. Um, and, you know, to literally put a bit of themselves into it. Uh, the other thing that I've noticed with this and, you know, for the installation at the VAC, you know, the aesthetics of the thing changed slightly, you know, from limiting different types of pieces of furniture. The video was no longer on a computer. It was actually projected in the space so you couldn't avoid, you know, the the, the instructions. I also... Um, put the instructions, had them cut out on vinyl and had them placed, you know, large scale, like we're talking 15, 20 feet, large instructions on the wall, sort of Lawrence Wiener-esque, um, so that people couldn't ignore those instructions in the space. And I think that the installation will continue to develop as I run into different types of situations and problems. Um, you know, some being that people come into the space and don't at all want to follow instructions whatsoever. And so in that way, it's a really kind of great psychological experiment for me because I get to watch, you know, people you know, kind of follow through with instructions, people follow through with instructions and then people just, you know, that come in and say, yeah, screw that. I'm not going to do that. And, you know, do something completely different. Um, and all of those things are complete valid, like completely valid responses, you know, to, to viewing work and to understanding work. So I'm excited to see what comes of this as it continues to evolve. Yeah, and I think it, that idea of allowing people to interact and, mm-hmm. and all of that just really come through flying colors. I, I I would imagine too that people try to steal what they've made all the time. Yes, because they, they do. also they also <laughs> happen to be very nice little objects. Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. I actually have um, just started working. Hopefully, this will take off. Working with the Print Center in Philadelphia, where we're going to make these little kits for these objects. So you can, you know, essentially buy a small, um, you, you get to buy one substrate. It comes with a roll of tape and it comes with a set of instructions. Um, and so you, you get to take this thing home. This is the way in which the viewer gets to actually physically have the thing at the end of the day, they get to make it and display it proudly in their home, but hopefully also photograph it and send it to the tumbler. So in that way, it kind of moves outside of the the realm of the gallery and like can move into people's homes and, and maybe can be seen as, you know, maybe not artwork at this particular point in time, but maybe just a, like a, a fun thing to make. It brings up an interesting idea to me in that when we've been talking a bit about, you know, how social media and new media, especially and, and ways of interacting with it can kind of affect you know, how we live and, and interact with each other online, especially it's, it's allowing people to become creative and, and, and to interact with it in a way. And I think, you know, that's, that's one of the things that kind of working in the way that you do by inviting people into the gallery space and, and doing those mm-hmm. things, allow it to do it in a, in a very physical way, as opposed to just a digital way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that physical, I think, I mean, the thing that I'm allowing for too, in that space is, is, you know, a conversation, right? Like that, the happening of a conversation, something that might not physically happen as much as it used to happen, you know? Um, but, or, or, or just a chance meeting, you know, of two people or, you know, something as simple as, I mean, I think I have watched people make those objects um, and have learned so much about how people approach material and how people approach making, how people approach instructions. Um, You know, I I teach, obviously. I I teach, and I teach freshmen, which I love teaching. Um, 
and every semester it's starting over from scratch. It's teaching, you know, 18, 17 and 18 year olds, how to hold a ruler, how to read a ruler, how to use a, a, an exacto knife, you know, how to measure things correctly. Um, how to do very simple hand tasks, you know, um, things that I don't think they think quite yet are very important. And I'm trying to teach them why those things are important. So even though I know that, that, that skill is, is missing from a majority of our population, or, or let's not say the skill is missing, but the reverence for that skill is missing. Um, I still am totally blown away with watching people like cut things with scissors and tape things with tape because something that I find fairly easy, um, and, and can be kind of neat about and, and can be systematic and, you know, make certain decisions as I'm working because I am an artist and because I'm used to, to doing those things, you know, the, the everyday person can, you know, they don't know where to cut or how to cut or how to use scissors or how to use tape, or they use too much tape or they can't get their thing to, to stay together and they get frustrated. And it's really, it's, it's all, you know, it's, I don't want to sound crazy here, but it's all been a really interesting psychological experiment thus far. <laughs> well, it, it reminds me of a book by Ken Robinson called The Element. Mm-hmm. And I actually heard him talking about this uh, on the air, um, I believe like a Dallas public radio station. And one of the things that was really fascinating to me about it was he talked about the way in which um, you can do a very simple experiment with kids, mm-hmm. come up with as many ways that they can use a paperclip. When you do this with young kids, they can come up with a hundred very easily, and they they kind of even rank it in terms of you know just write down as many of these different ways as you can, and kids can come up with a hundred very easily. And as they slowly kind of test them, um, by the time they get to their their you know into their teenage years, they're losing that ability to just come up with random mm-hmm. ways of of exploring this this possibility. And right. I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about making these kind of interactive installations where you're allowing people to have that, that time to just kind of, I'm going to just make this thing and right. I'm going to follow the rules or I'm not going to follow the rules or, Oh, I forgot a bit of tape there, or I'm going to, you know, make this new shape. And so I think that it really unlocks that ability to be creative, which is something that I, th- I think a lot of people gravitate towards. And it's just a matter of kind of unlocking that for them. Yeah, Definitely. Definitely. Well, where where else is this traveling? Just to just to to remind us again, all of the dates that you have coming up. Uh, there'll be a show at uh, Arprem Gallery in Montreal in May. Uh, it opens in the middle of May, and then and I'm actually working with a group of um, artists in Montreal at Atelier Graph, which is a um, um, a private. Uh, print shop in Montreal and we're going to print on the opposite side of the substrate. So this will be a double-sided substrate. This will be the first time that that'll be introduced into the equation. So, you know, the first side was printed on with a Texas state students, and then we'll be printing a group of us um, in Montreal before the installation. So our prem in May um, in Montreal, and then uh, Indianapolis art center in Indianapolis in June, early June. And then, um, it goes to uh, Elon University in Elon, North Carolina, in November of 2013. Excellent, and yeah. uh, and of course you're going to be in the studio when you're not um, managing all your other responsibilities. I'm sure making new stuff. So yeah, we'll see. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's been great having you on, and um, you know, really interesting to hear all about what's been going on in your studio. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. It took way too long, but I'm glad that that we finally had the chance to talk. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Leslie for joining us. And please go ahead. Check out her work, lesliemutchler.com. Follow those links. Once again, if you want to see more work, there's tons of it on studiobreak.com. Look over on the left on the sidebar, access the archive feature, go month by month. Again, we've been up for over a year and a half, so we've got tons of different artists, over 60 full-length podcasts, including slideshows, links to artists' websites, and all sorts of good stuff. So please go ahead and check all that stuff out. Once again, if you want to learn more about me, your host, you can find my work by visiting my website, davidlinaway.com. Again, look on the left sidebar. You can click that hyperlink to my website where I've just included, I think, five new paintings. So please go ahead and check all the new work out. 
And before I forget, we do have a donate button. So if you're feeling generous and you'd like to support what we do at Studio Break and help our expanding projects, which are including a number of curated shows and all sorts of good stuff, please go ahead. We'd really appreciate it. As always, our music today was found at freemusicarchive.org. They've got thousands of songs, tons of free albums that you can download. Really fun to go and peruse and check things out, so please go ahead and visit freemusicarchive.org. Again, our songs today, both by Broke for Free, our opener, Blown Out, and Taking Us Out as Something Elated. As always, if you can't get enough of Studio Break, we hope that you subscribe to our blog, as well as like our Facebook page. Again, our Facebook page, Studio Break, provides a number of previews from some of the guests that we have coming up, as well as show announcements, exhibition announcements from some of the great artists that we've had on. And also, if there's any good opportunities, we like to post them there, so please go ahead, check it out, and like us. Of course, if you've canceled your Facebook account, you can always follow us on Twitter, at Studio Break, so please go ahead and do that. Hopefully it goes without saying, but if you enjoy this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you posted it on Facebook, tweeted it, whatever. We would really love it if you could help us get the word out. And, of course, if you want, you can subscribe to us in the iTunes Store. Search for Studio Break on our podcast. Subscribe there. And please, leave us some comments, some feedback. Again, some of the recent interviews we've had have been killer, including Shelby Shadwell, Kendra Pates talking about House of the Seven Gables, which runs through April 7th, I believe. Go ahead and check that out. Again, a really great episode, really great show at Illinois State University Galleries. And, of course, if you haven't seen my show, I'm in a group show at St. Louis University, which runs through April, I believe. Again, there's information on the Facebook page, so go ahead and check that out. And please... Share with anybody that you think would find this podcast interesting. Of course, thanks for listening. We really appreciate all the support and feedback. And we'll talk to you real soon.